Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your Sam Vecini. We're presented by CLNS Media today on the show. John Krasinski is here for the first part of this episode and Danny LaRue is here for the second part. The topic today is NBA defense, particularly who are the best defenders in the NBA. John Krasinski uh, over at The Athletic, along with uh, our colleague Josh Robbins, published a coaches poll. They co- they polled 23 coaches across the NBA uh, regarding who they would choose to be on the all-defense teams and uh, who would be their, their pick for defensive player of the year in the league. I'm going to talk through that story with him. And then later on, Danny LaRue and I are going to talk uh, just from our perspective as analysts, who we think some of the best defenders are. And uh, is there something that ends up getting lost in the shuffle uh, from the coach's perspective uh, to the analyst's perspective? So John, how you doing, man? It's good to, good to talk to you. Yeah, doing great, Sam. Thanks for having me. Uh, just kind of kicking back up at the lake here this week and uh, dropping stories and keeping people uh, with something to chew on while we're all waiting, while we're all waiting for Orlando to happen. So uh, it was, this was a fun one to do with Josh, for sure. God, I, I love that you decided to go down this road because evaluating defense is one of my favorite things to try and do. Like, uh, the exciting part of the rookie scale project that I just completed is the offense and seeing where guys are growing on offense, seeing how guys get better. But where I really get going is trying to determine, you know, are these guys performing within their scheme? Are these guys performing uh, what their coach is asking them to do? Are they difference makers? Are they playmakers uh, on that end of the floor and trying to figure out uh, – Defense is really hard when you're a young player, right? And, and trying to figure out who these yeah. uh, rising players are who are going to be incredible difference makers defensively down the road in the NBA is a really, really fun process. But uh, that's not the purpose of this one today. This story today was about the league's best defender. So the first question I will ask you is simply, what was the genesis of this project? Yeah, so I'll I'll give all the credit to Josh Robbins, our our guy in Orlando, for really coming up with the idea. But he we we collaborated on it, and and really the the thinking Sam is is that um you know we we as media members uh vote on all of these different awards, MVP, uh, first team All NBA, all of these all these different uh, uh awards, and and it's there's a great reason for that. Theoretically, I think the the voting block of media members is is trying to do it in a dispassionate way, um, tries to view the league as a whole and and tries to come up with the the fairest assessment uh, for for these awards. But one of the things that I think is fair to say is that um, defense and, and the all defensive teams and defensive player of the year in particular is one of the harder awards to, to, to vote on because. Um, you know, I think as you alluded to, Sam, you know, a lot of these players, um, when you're trying to evaluate them, you're not just doing, not just looking at, hey, what, how many steals do they have, how many blocks do they have, how many deflections and things like that, but you really have to factor in, are they adhering to the schemes they're being asked to execute, and what are the other players around them doing in terms of, are they helping them, are they hurting them, and and so evaluating it on that scale is. Is, is tricky to do. You can't just look at a basketball reference page and say, okay, this guy's having a great year defensively. I think you really have to watch closely and, and evaluate the film and, 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 and just try and see that way um, who's there. Now, so our, our thinking is who watches more film, who is more involved in the day-to-day game planning than coaches. And I think that the idea was to to poll, and we, we talked to 33 total coaches and then 23 just on the defensive player of the year, but 33 we had vote for first and second team all defense. And we wanted to just get the viewpoint of the assistant and head coaches who are in their day-to-day grinding, looking at the film, preparing for to face these defenders and who do they lose sleep at night over and and that's kind of was our was our thinking was that they know the game very well they prepare for these guys night in and night out 
So who are the guys that they really value the most and who are the guys that maybe they're, they're, they're scared of when they walk into a game and say, we better watch out or this guy's going to take apart our offense. And so we went, we went to them and we just tried to get as wide a sample size as possible to get uh, the, the coach's view on, on who the best defenders are. So in your reporting process, is there a kind of theme that came up where you felt like coaches really value this coaches really value this ability, uh, you know, this skill, this talent, this feel for the game. Is there something that seemed to be recurring because, you know, you have a lot of really great color in terms of quotes in this story from coaches just regarding, uh, you know, Rudy Gobert really ends possessions defensively and Kawhi Leonard does an incredible amount with his technical craft, uh, of preparation and footwork. Is there something that came up more often than others within these conversations that made you like stop and go, Hmm, I wonder if this is the most uh, essential part of defense. Yeah. I think that, you know, if there was a theme and, and it kind of runs the gamut because Sam, you're looking at um, players, you know, you're looking at all sorts of different coaches and what they value and what they don't value. And, and, and so there's going to be different, uh, views on 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 what certain individual coaches are looking for and what they think is really disruptive. But I would say if there was a common theme that came out, it was a, a versatility. So in this day and age of positionless basketball and the way that the um, the 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 you know shooting guard and small forward really blend together, the power forward you know, two, three, four can really be interchangeable in some ways. And, and that I think there was a real value on players who could guard multiple positions. I mean, you look at kind of our first team, Gobert, Giannis, Marcus Smart, Kawhi Leonard, Ben Simmons, you know, a lot of that, uh, a lot of the value there is on guys who could guard one through four or five, um, depending on, on who you're having in that group. And, and, you know, you see so much, of the pick and roll game and so much of, of, of offense today is hunting mismatches and, and getting switches onto uh, weaker defenders for your better ball handlers to, to take apart. And, and what they looked at with, with these guys are the ones who can blow up a pick and roll, the ones who can, if they get caught in a switch can hold their own in the post. uh, If they're guards, you know, uh, guarding a bigger man in the post strengths, uh, you know, tenacity. I think those, those are the kind of traits that came up over and over again when you're, when you're looking at these guys. And, um, I just think that there's a recognition overall that the, you know, the days of dump it into the post back to your basket center. And so you need a big, just a big, strong shot blocker. And that's, who's going to get all of the, all of the love from the defense uh, is it, it, it's going away. And so you need the Kawhi Leonard's, you need the Marcus smarts, you need the Ben Simmons with the long arms who can, who can really disrupt, get into passing lanes and, and create turnovers and, and, and just cover a lot of the court contest three pointers on the perimeter, which we're seeing more and more these days. And that's, you know, that's what came up over and over again. Um, even, even on the second team with Eric Bledsoe, who I think that, you know, there are, there are some differing views on, on him as a player in general, but just the size and the strength and the quickness on the perimeter to be able to, to guard ones or twos. If you get switched on, you know, uh, in, in a pick and roll, he can hold his own. That's, that just seemed to come up over and over again for coaches as they were looking at guys that, that they had to, to really worry about when they're scheming against them. It's so interesting because, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with Bledsoe and uh, just his ability to even, like, contest from behind and uh, mm-hmm. you know really pester and fight around screens, right? Like, uh, he might not be switchable, but he provides value uh, in the game's most essential action in terms of what opposing coaches have to stop. Now, with... <laughs> with Rudy Gobert, it's kind of the opposite end of that yeah. spectrum, right? And he was, uh, along with Giannis, the guy who got the most votes for Defensive Player of the Year. And in the vein of versatility and in the vein of uh, having these guys that are switchable, I find that incredibly interesting, if only because 
while having someone like a Rudy Gobert is exceptionally uh, valuable and while having someone that is versatile like a Kawhi Leonard, like a Paul George, like a uh, Pascal Siakam or a Ben Simmons is also incredibly valuable. It does seem that uh, coaches value having someone who can slide their feet just well enough while also being able to shut down the paint just due to their sheer presence. And I think that another guy that kind of lines that up is the fact that, you know, Brooke Lopez got a first place vote for defensive player of the year here. And uh, I believe was third place in terms of the center position. Yeah. And that, that is the, one of the things that we noted in the piece, Sam, that really did struck uh, stick out to me that you're pointing out is that I I think it's a little bit of a, you know, old dogs, new tricks type of a scenario here, because as much as we talked to these coaches about what they value about the changing game, about the the evolution to a more perimeter oriented game, um, all of these things that that factor in and that are very much present in the in the hearts and minds of coaches today. You still you look at the defensive player of the year voting, and you have Gobert, Giannis, Anthony Davis. Then it goes Kawhi, Beverly, Brook Lopez, and and so. Um, Beverly is the only true guard there and and it's a lot of big men and and so I think that there's still this sort of um I don't know romance that coaches have with the bigs <laughs> on the back line that they just have not been able to totally get out of their DNA yet and I'm not even saying that they need to I mean Gobert is a good defender just in a different way uh Brooke Lopez you know uh even you know Giannis guards five he's big Anthony Davis is versatile but um but there's just there there is this still in, in the coaches when you're talking about okay give me the creamier crop your top defensive players they're still skewing to the big guy who rebounds and blocks shots and 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 does those things and I think they're important but I don't think they're quite as as critical to what to stopping offenses uh, in in this day and age, and you know, I'm I'm based in Minnesota, so I've watched Carl Anthony Towns take Rudy Gobert apart um, several times in their in their matchups just by drawing him out to the perimeter and and putting up big numbers on him, and 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 there, so there are things like that where there are, and and I think that if you talk to some analysts and if, even if you talk to some coaches, they would say that Rudy did not have his best season uh, this year, but I still just think that there's a respect for that position and for that ability like to end possessions one way or another that that just is still in the back of the minds of these coaches and that they 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 have not fully moved on from just yet so let's talk about you know specific players were there any players that surprised you in terms of garnering a lot of support or garnering not a lot of support um, I'm trying to, you know, the, the one thing that, that I kind of, um, contributed here, what I was a little surprised about, even though, um, Rudy and Giannis were, were the ended up splitting for DPOI, I can't, I, I was a little surprised, Sam, about how so many of the conversations when I just said, Hey, who are your best defenders? Let's talk first team, all defense. Who do you have on there? That Marcus Smart was the first guy that came out of coaches mouths very often. And just said they, the, a lot of these guys said that's the guy who I think about in terms of just a junkyard dog, just just a guy who's going to fight you night in and night out, um, who I think about the most when I'm starting to think about all defense. And even though, so again, even though he didn't get uh, a lot of defensive player of the year voting, he was a guy that just, I mean, just leaped off the page when you're talking about just starting conversations. Marcus Smart was was there a lot. Um, one guy, you know, when you look at um, Brooke Lopez in in particular, he you know he wasn't uh, first or second team, but he he was mentioned a lot. Uh, and and I didn't know that I if I expected that to be honest with you. Um, when when I was when I was thinking of who who's going to be mentioned more, you know, more often than not. Um, Brooke came up more often than, than, than I expected. But if you talk to people in Milwaukee, they love what he brings to that defense and, and kind of how his game has evolved. So, so that was something, I mean, a couple of guys who didn't get, like, I was surprised that Drew Holiday was not uh, first or second team. Um, Yeah, I was too, to be honest. Yeah. In covering this league and in talking to guys night in and night out on who they're, 
who they know that they're going to be in for a long night with. I mean, Drew Holiday is about as good as it gets. And so for him not to get in even to the second team there, that one that one really did did surprise me as a guy who did not, you know, just didn't, uh, who I thought was going to be garring more votes and certainly be in the mix for the first team all defense. And he just, he, he just was not, uh, didn't, didn't get the votes that I thought he would. Yeah. And it's funny too. Like, I think that a lot of times these awards, uh, even, even in the minds of coaches end up being skewed slightly by and like offensive production on some level because you have to have a certain level of offensive production to stay on the court, right? Like right. Chris Dunn for me is like unquestionably Terrific. one of the four best perimeter defenders in the NBA. Like he, mm-hmm. he just is. There's yeah. He is a terror on the ball. He is able to switch down onto fours because of his toughness and length and strength. Uh, he forces turnovers at a rate uh, I don't know that I can remember seeing uh, in the backcourt just in terms of playing time, but because he is only playing, what, like 20 to 25 minutes a night uh, in Chicago because his offense isn't good enough, uh, you know, it ends up being skewed to where he ends up falling lower and honestly he probably should fall a little bit lower because his offense doesn't allow him to make the defensive impact that he can um you you know you mentioned brooke lopez like brooke lopez has been i I totally agree with the coaches i I think he is exceptional in that scheme the way that uh they play drop coverage and basically just dare guys to go into his body uh and try and finish in the paint is exceptional uh he's so strong and so physical and uh, is so good with his positioning and is so good with being prepped on how guys are going to drive upon him that it's uh, he's remarkable, I think, defensively. And I'm really glad that he got the uh, respect from the coaches. But then the other interesting guy here is, you know, the center position. We have Rudy Gobert, who is, you know, pure post defender, uh, you know, rim protector type, right? Joel Embiid, pure post defender, rim protector. Miles Turner. Same deal. Steven Adams, same deal. Uh, a couple of people apparently voted for Andre Drummond, which is a decision that I can't wrap my head around. Um, Jared <laughs> Allen right. and Tamana Sabonis, same deal, right? Like, um, yeah. th- these guys are not the most mobile, but then you're sitting at uh, second team all defense center is Bam Adebayo, who espouses so many of the skills that we talked about at the top of this conversation in terms of his switchability, in terms of his playmaking, in terms of his uh, ability to take on tough defensive assignments as uh, a pick and roll rim protector, uh, you know, who can either go out and switch on two guards or can play drop coverage and uh, protect the rim. Or you can put him on a LeBron James and force LeBron uh, to match up with someone who is as strong as he is. I find the dichotomy or the juxtaposition, I guess is the better word for it, of the past of the center position with these you know, longer traditional rim protectors and Bam, who many people consider to be the future of the center position, uh, just so interesting in the way that uh, coaches look at these players. Yeah, totally. And and I think, you know, when you look at, let's just put Lopez and Dunn together, I do think that one of the other things that factors in, obviously, with these coaches is wins and losses. Um, you know, Milwaukee, number one in the NBA all year long. And, and so that you see, you know, not only Lopez getting mentioned, you see Bledsoe in there, Giannis, obviously. And so I think they benefit from um, from that. And I think Chris Dunn gets hurt because Chicago just wasn't very good. Uh, and, and, and that's probably rightfully so. I mean, that's that's part of it part of the evaluation. But yeah, I do think, you know, and, and I had, you know, there was a quote in the story, um, one of the coaches gave me about Bam and just saying, it's not going to be long till he's at the top of this list. And so I do think that there is a recognition again, like that, that, that the game is changing and that it's evolving and we're going to be seeing more, I think of the Bam Adebayo's and maybe less of the Rudy Gobert's um, as we go forward, but I still just think that it's this, we're in this process. So coaches just have not all fully committed to, to turning that page just yet. And so, um, you know, as we go, if we do this again next year and the year after and the year after, maybe we'll, we'll start to see more of the, the smaller, the, the, the more mobile, the more athletic, uh, versatile guys like the Bam Adebayo start to creep in even more and more. 
um, and, and kind of the more traditional bigs going away. That's why, you know, uh, Hassan Whiteside, who had, you know, has a bunch of blocks and a bunch of rebounds, no, no mention here. And I think that's a good sign, you know, that, that these coaches are looking at this in a way that is educated and smart and understanding that, you know, just the numbers on it are not going to fool some of these guys into saying, oh, no, yeah, he he is a presence on that end. He's not like he's he's a you know, he's a disaster on that end. And so um, so I think in the past you may have seen, you know, maybe five or six years ago, you may have seen a guy like Whiteside get some 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 mention um, in a in a story like this, just because he's a really big dude that plops in the middle of the paint and gets rebounds and blocks some shots, but we're moving away from that now, and I think that we're not fully uh, uh, completely detached from that yet, but but we're getting closer to that. Yeah, and I mean, do you know what the <laughs> the funniest part about the white side thing is that I kind of think that, and I don't think you should be anywhere near this list necessarily either. But I kind of think this has been one of his better defensive seasons because sure. it's really yeah. well in their drop coverage scheme. Like, it, it's what's really funny. Like, uh, in the past, he has gotten these kind of, uh, accolades and these kind of defensive stopper, uh, notices. I think he even made an all defense team, if I'm not mistaken, right? Uh, Maybe, yeah, yeah, he made an all defense team in 2016 because he blocked shots. And, mm-hmm. uh, I think that you're 100% right. We're getting smarter and we're getting, uh, better at the way that we look at the defensive side of the floor. And, uh, the last thing I want to finish on here is you finished with an up and comers section, which I thought was so great. Mm-hmm. Uh, just given kind of what I said about the defensive side of the floor, uh, it, just kind of evaluating that whenever I did the rookie scale project that I just published. And, uh, you mentioned four guys. I, I want to just pose the question to you. Who is the guy you kind of brought it up with Bam earlier where you said, Oh, you know, in a year or two, this guy's going to be at the top of the list. Uh, is there another guy like that that just continued to come up more and more whenever you asked about who are the best young defenders in the NBA? Yeah, I think that, you know, um, in, in the guys that, uh, in the coaches that I talk to, um, Jonathan Isaac certainly is a guy that mm-hmm. people look at as eventually being, you know, just a top flight guy. If he's not, I mean, he might be there already or close to it. Um, just in yeah. terms of his versatility is a, you know, long arms, his ability to do so many different things that way. Um, and, you know, people might think that you know, that I'm biased because I'm in Minnesota, but Okogi's name did come up as well. I mean, as a <laughs> as a perimeter guy who, uh, you know, battles the likes of James Harden and does that and gets after people and is just tenacious that way. He's going to be another guy like Dunn, who I think may be hurt long term by his um, lack of offense. And certainly if the Timberwolves are not very good, he's not going to get those kind of accolades coming his way. But. Uh, but many coaches did mention Okogi to me as as a guy that they're watching on the come up, you know. And this is also not meant to be a comprehensive list by any means, because I think a guy like right. Matisse Thibel, you know, certainly belongs in that conversation. Jalen Brown's name did come up from you know from multiple people, um, just mentioning that they really liked him and he got some some uh, some votes for 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 the all defense teams so i think that that he is a guy who was on the radar obviously um bruce brown was was one that was mentioned in there as well and really it was one coach who i really respect uh from the defensive side who was really bullish on bruce bruce brown and just was really lobbying for him and he was not a pistons coach i'll tell you that so um so it it just resonated with me as a guy that that I wanted to include, but um, any of those guys, I think, but I think Isaac certainly is probably at the head of that pack of guys who just is gaining a lot of notice and saying, and people are looking at and saying, as long as he stays healthy and, you know, in that system with Orlando, Steve Clifford's a great uh, defensive coach and just the match there is going to be one that can really wreak some havoc here in the future. I'm so glad you mentioned Isaac because that's going to be a point of conversation when I talk to Danny LaRue later. John, do you have anything else you want to plug before you get out of here? 
Uh, no, I appreciate the uh, appreciate you having me. I love the podcast. Um, yeah, I, I mean we're we're continuing to do stuff this week. I had a profile of Joe Branch, the Timberwolves assistant GM, who is one of the I don't I want to say few, but uh, uh, he's a an African American front office member in an NBA team, and he's been pivotal in kind of the Timberwolves helping. Um, respond to the George Floyd death uh, locally and, and really trying to kind of make the, the organization leaders in the community here. So I really looked kind of into his profile, his background as an agent with Rock Nation and things like that. It's another kind of long read. So if people are looking to uh, kill some time over the holiday weekend, maybe check that one out as well. John, thank you for coming on, man. I'm really glad that we got a chance to chat. And uh, next up is going to be Danny LaRue talking more about NBA defense. All right, we are here now with Danny LaRue, uh, another one of my colleagues over at The Athletic from over at the Real GM podcast, over at the Dunk Down podcast. Danny, you have too many jobs. It's hard for me to keep track of you, man. It's hard enough for me to keep track. I, I, don't, I don't usually make other people have to have to do that, but excited to be on. So in the first part of this podcast that you have not yet listened to, I talked with John Krasinski about the project that he and Josh Robbins did where they went and talked to a bunch of NBA coaches and asked them who they thought would be on the NBA all or should be on the all NBA defensive team and who they thought should win the defensive player of the year award. Who have you read that article first? Let's uh, just go there. Yeah, I have. Uh, what were your initial and just immediate reactions? I thought there was a little conflation, more specifically with Rudy Gobert, between best defender and defensive player of the year. I thought that, you know, I've been a big believer in Rudy Gobert's defense over the past few seasons and picked him as my defensive player of the year in each of the previous two years. But to me, he took a little bit of a step back. And it's true, like Giannis got more second place votes. So I mean, first plus second, Giannis had it. But to me, it was, there was a pretty clear margin this year. While Gobert was great, he wasn't as good in previous years. And Giannis was, I think he was the best defender and the most valuable defender when you think about his importance in the Bucks system. And the Bucks were amazing yet again this year. Well, it's fascinating too with Milwaukee because Milwaukee ended up with three guys on their first team. Uh, or on their two teams, I'm sorry, between – oh, no, they didn't because Brooke ended up being the third best center. So they ended yeah. up with two guys on the all-defense teams and then the guy that finished, I think, like seventh for them in defensive player of the year uh, voting from the coaches. And that is very interesting to me on a number of levels, if only – because I, I, it's hard, I think, to separate who is valuable, who is providing the most value, who is uh, the centerpiece, who keys the defense, just because they all play such drastically different roles in Milwaukee. Like Eric's job is to fight way over the top of screens, contest from behind, and make the ball handler's life uh, more difficult at the point of attack and at the uh, mesh point of the screen. Brooks' job is to essentially just play drop coverage and wall off the paint and make it exceptionally difficult to finish through him at the basket. And then Giannis's job is to cover up everything. <laughs> like Giannis uh, doesn't do a ton at the point of attack on screens. Sometimes uh, his man ends up uh, putting him into screen coverages, but it's pretty rare if only because why the fuck would you put Giannis into ball screen scenarios defensively uh, whenever you have a different option on the court? But uh, just the way that he's able to impact from the weak side and from a help perspective, uh, it seems like defenses are just always so cognizant of where he is on the court at all times. Exactly. And also defensive rebounding. I mean, I think that's the other the other element that the Bucks do incredibly well. They were the best defensive rebounding team in the NBA this year, and that's a team effort. You know, that's not a one-person thing, even though teams crashing the offensive glass, including the Bucks, incidentally, is not as much of a storyline right now as it has been at moments in the past. And Giannis is an important part of their attack, defensive attack, there too. And you brought up the Bucks and how everybody has different jobs. I think in some ways the more telling part of that is the Toronto Raptors finished second in defense per cleaning the glass, which filters out garbage time. And they only had one player 
that got any votes for any for first, second, or third in, on, on Defensive Player of the Year, and that was Pascal Siakam, who got one third-place vote. And that is a reminder. Boston has been this in the past. There are numerous other teams that defense – more so than offense, not only is it a team effort conceptually, as you were just getting into describing what all the Bucks guys do, but also it's harder to apportion credit and blame. So it just, in certain circumstances, it just gets really hard. I mean, Boston, has, I think they've outperformed their their defensive talent a lot in the last couple of years, and credit to Brad Stevens and, of course, their players. But Toronto this year is another amazing embodiment of that idea. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that's a really, really great point. And, uh, it is interesting to me that, like, you know, no one else on Toronto is really in these conversations. Like, I know that um, uh, Fred Van Vliet and Kyle Lowry certainly got uh, votes within this project for uh, their all-defense team, you know, positions. But it, it's it, – and, like, Marcus Gasol obviously has only played 36 games this year, so he kind of falls into the Jonathan Isaac zone in terms of – uh, does this guy play enough games to really be in the mix for some sort of defensive player of the entire year award? Uh, in Isaac's case, I really think there is a case. Uh, in Mark's case, I'm a little bit less sold on that. But it's it's obviously really fascinating that, you know, Toronto does not have anyone on either of these two teams. And uh, they are an exceptionally well-honed, well-crafted defense. And I think that uh, another portion of it that, uh, you know, we haven't talked about yet is just talking and having that uh, continuity of personnel that Toronto has outside of Kawhi this year. And then uh, having those defensive leaders who have been in this scheme for a long time, who really know uh, where everyone is supposed to be like a Kyle Lowry, uh, you know, even like a Fred Van Vliet and a Pascal Siakam now. Absolutely. And the importance of intelligence. And, and as you said, talking, I mean, the, the, Raptors run so many different concepts within it. There are many teams that do, but we saw that a lot in the 2019 NBA Finals. They, you know, they ran a box and one on Steph Curry at one point when Steph Curry's teammates just kept on getting injured. And you can't pull something like that out of your bag of tricks without a great coach, but also without having players with the aptitude to handle it, to make that a reality and to make it effective. And that is part of why, to me, coaching, you know, coaching, coaching affects all aspects. And a lot of times we focus on who a player, who a coach plays and, and when and how. And I think defense is another, like, to me, if a team, especially if they outperform their personnel there, that's a calibrator. And so then that, that can sometimes tie in. And I'm, I'm sure there are times, though, where that leads to players, like, in various stripes. I mean, the, the Raptors are examples of this. Various Celtics could be examples of this. The, the coach actually sometimes getting credit when the players are exceedingly important to making it a reality, too. So on the first team here um, from the coaches, we saw Rudy Gobert, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Marcus Smart, Kawhi Leonard, and Ben Simmons. I would agree with four out of those five players. Uh, what were your thoughts on the first team? I, I thought they got it. They got it pretty close. I mean, the challenge with Kawhi Leonard is right. That's by the way, the guy for me. Yeah, like well. Kawhi Leonard. If if we're talking defensive players of the year, you know, when you include the playoffs, yeah, no question about it. Like he, you could argue that he is one of the most capable and dominant defenders in the NBA. But both due to his offensive workload, which is incredibly important, and it's not reasonable to expect players who have a really high usage to be dominant defenders because you just don't have that much energy, but also with load management. I mean, he just, and just not load management in terms of the games he misses, but also in terms of just, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't go at it full defensively. And and I think right. that sometimes capability and excellence are, are thought of as the same thing. And, and quite lettered. Yeah. I mean, if we're talking about who are the best defenders in the league, he's on the, he's on the short list there. And I think that he is a, he is very, on the short list, you know, like he's, he's in the top two or three, but that is a little bit of a different conversation. So yeah, I think that Kawhi, especially like there was something that I thought was weird where they count the, the, the coaches counted Anthony Davis as a center. And I thought the partially due to the, the, that he plays so often at power forward and also just the idea of equity that putting Davis on that first team would have been a more fair way to do it. And it's not even fudging to put him at forward, but you would be worth it anyway to put arguably the third best defensive player in the NBA this year. I think I had him fourth to put him on the first team. Yeah, no, I would also have Anthony Davis on the first team over Kawhi. 
Uh, I, I wouldn't really even think twice about it. Anthony Davis has been ridiculous defensively this year. The Lakers have been very good defensively this year. Uh, he certainly keys uh, a lot of what the Lakers do defensively because, you know, very similar. He essentially plays the Giannis role uh, for the Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, it's a very similar drop coverage scheme where they have these big centers, uh, you know, essentially trying to wall off the paint with Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee. And then in the case of when they go smaller, which the Lakers do go smaller with Anthony Davis at center a bit more than I would say the Bucks do, uh, at least anecdotally. I don't know if that's necessarily true in terms of the way it bears itself out uh, numerically. But Davis is so good at being a switchable defender who can get onto guards as well that it's it, his overall impact both in help and in on-ball defense I think is just greater than what Kawhi Leonard's is. And I agree with you that Kawhi, uh, Kawhi is the best on ball perimeter stopper in the NBA when he wants to put his mind to it. But go back and watch the 2019 Eastern conference finals. I mean, that's really, that's really all you need. Yeah. It's a hundred percent accurate, but at the end of the day, I think that putting him on the second team is a reasonable detraction, uh, for what his, uh, you know, I don't even want to say it's sometimes lacking effort. It's just, you know, there is a very real load question with Kawhi where he's not always 100% engaged on defense because he shouldn't be always engaged on defense. Yeah, I I think that's totally fair. Uh, An interesting part of the argument against Anthony Davis, which wasn't really made in the piece, is this kind of how the Lakers defense succeeded and failed with and without him. So the Lakers defense was actually, strangely enough, I believe they were stingier when Davis did not play. And when you look at some of the, the old classic hallmarks of what for a, a big man, and Davis, as you said, it's more like Giannis than like Gobert in terms of the role that he plays within this Lakers defense. But teams shot, they shot a little bit, actually a little bit better around the rim when Davis was on the floor. The, uh, the shot frequency was pretty similar. It wasn't too dramatic. But some of that is also just competent players behind him. The Lakers had challenges when when Davis wasn't on the floor sometimes, but a lot of that was you think of the correlated factors of like he, that he was often playing with LeBron. And that gets into somebody else that I think was really underappreciated within the, the coaches polling. And I'm not completely surprised because the Sixers underachieved relative to expectations overall, though Simmons mm-hmm. made first team. We'll talk about that. But when you look at some of the, the on-off elements with Joel Embiid, it's really striking. So Philadelphia's opponents, they're, they're, well, let's just go basic offensive rating first. So they scored, Philly's opponents scored 100, 103.6 points per hundred possessions when Joel Embiid was on the floor. They went up to 111.6 when he sat. And yes, Philly Browns rotations, it's not apples to apples by any stretch. Embiid is not the only factor here. But when you look at some of the other things, you know, that opponents were taking a lot more shots around the rim when Embiid sat. They were making a lot more of their shots around the rim when Embiid sat. And so I think what happens sometimes is like, yeah, the Sixers, they were sixth in defense. You, I mean, Nate Duncan, my podcast partner on Dunk Don, talked about how there was the possibility that they had like some of the best defensive personnel in NBA history. And I think that's true. And they underperformed those expectations. But I don't think Embiid deserves the, like the blame for that. I'm not saying he was the best or the second best defensive center even in the league. But it is weird to me that, you know, especially when you're talking about defensive player of the year versus best defenders, I, I think he deserved a stronger place in the conversation, even if, you know, I didn't have him number one or number two. Yeah, I'm just kind of running through what their record was with Embiid, and it's pretty outrageous. I mean, I'm at, you know, 19 and 9 right now, 20 and 10, um, you know, through their first 30 games. And then I think that uh, it was pretty close to that in terms of uh, their win-loss rate uh, in his final 14 games. Uh, It looks like they won 1, 2, 5, 6, 7, 8. So they went 8 and 6. Uh, down the stretch, so add two games, so they essentially went 28 and 16 with Embiid in the lineup this year. Uh, given the fact that they, uh, I believe, were right around that in terms of uh, where their win loss was in terms of games above 500, they went 39-26. So uh, the 76ers this year were basically a 500 team with uh, without Joel Embiid, and then were a well over 500 team, like on the pace for well over uh, what that'd be damn near 
50 they'd be a little bit over well, 50 wins. Yes, yeah. if you want to use cleaning the glass as point differentials, they're a 55 win team when Embiid is on the floor, and they were a 500 team when he was off. Yeah, so, so I, think that's, I think that's a fair a fair proxy of it. So yeah, I mean with Embiid on the court, they are just monstrous defensively. Now Ben has an easier road to make all defense because he doesn't have to go up against Rudy Gobert, doesn't have to go up against Bam Adebayo and Brooke Lopez. Well, and there are only two center slots, which I, I still think is a little bit ridiculous, that center is the most, still, the most important defensive position in the NBA, and yet they get two spots, and every, you know, and yeah, it's true, like, you can argue that there, there are two, there's only one center on the floor, but, I mean, I would, I would loosen it up, I'll just throw this out there, my proposal would be one center, one forward, one guard, and two wild cards. I think that would be the most fair way. That's actually also how I would do all NBA. And because then it's, you know, you get to use a little bit of the positional value because I don't think it's fair for a better defensive player to be hurt just because, especially if it's a defensively important position. And more importantly, sometimes it's not fair for the guards to benefit from that. So where the NBA is right now and has been in the past, I generally do agree with you that I would do that. But this goes into something that I was talking about with John Krasinski earlier. When he talked to NBA coaches, the thing that came up most for them was they wanted guys who were versatile defensively and could guard multiple different positions, uh, play well and help defense, and do it uh, at a high level as well. Sure. And I think that as we are moving toward that kind of structure in our time here in the NBA and in what the future of the NBA is going to look like, uh, I think that the future of the NBA looks a lot more like Bam Adebayo than it does Rudy Gobert and Joel Embiid. So uh, in terms of like what you're saying as an idea, yes. And honestly, like that's a fantastic story idea to go back through and like history and see how many guys at the center position where the center position back in the day was so much more important defensively, even just given how few three pointers were taken, uh, you know, throughout the nineties and even the early two thousands. I don't know that it's a, it's a great idea to change it that way uh, for the rest of the future of NBA history, maybe. Yeah, there, there certainly is validity to that. And I wanted to make sure that we got back to Ben Simmons because I do not want my Embiid praise to in any way be interpreted as Ben Simmons doesn't deserve the praise that he gets. And I think that Simmons' versatility, I'm glad that you brought that up, is absolutely essential for the Sixers. And that's a big part of the concept of Simmons' value. I know you got into this in the rookie scale rankings, is that he can basically credibly defend everyone one through four. And he's not the best defender in the league on every single one of those guys, but the amount of people who can credibly do that, and it doesn't, you know, it it matters what system you're doing because that has more or less value utility for different teams, but it's useful everywhere. And so if you want to run a man-to-man scheme and you could put Ben Simmons on the other, on, on your opponent's best perimeter player, awesome. If you want to run a switch system and know that he's never going to be attacked, that works too. And there's just if you want to play him in like some help heavy, like zony style of defense, sure. he's gonna be a monster there. Absolutely. And the more Ben Simmons as there are in the world defensively, the better. And how amazing is that of a sentence to say if you if all you saw was like his LSU film? <laughs> and, oh, he's a disaster and, on defense at LSU because he could not give fewer fucks. Like, exactly. Amazing. And so, and Simmons is is a fascinating calibrator. I don't want to get too far afield of the the things that when you as a like a draft and prospect evaluator, what what you look for in a in a player is sometimes a little bit different than how they are at that moment in time, and that's a real challenge. Um, and it's not c- truly correct. I mean, there are lots of guys with physical tools who are intelligent basketball players who aren't good defenders. But Simmons, it wasn't that shocking. I think you and I talked about this on probably this podcast and Real Jam Radio at the time, that he had the capability. It was just going to be whether he actually cared. Yeah, no, it's funny with Ben because we just never saw him care on defense in college. So I was honestly a little bit skeptical of him on defense just because, like, we had not seen it. You know what I mean? Like, you were right. Uh, everything that he had physically, like, I think I remember David Thorpe was like, yeah, he's going to be an all-NBA defensive player. And I was like, that seems aggressive based off of what we've seen. But David was a 1,000% right on that. Uh, he could not have nailed that more. 
given where Ben has gone to. I mean, he's just one of the best help defenders in the NBA as well. Like, I can't get over how good he is in help defense. Uh, he is just a havoc inducer with the way that he can fly around the court. And he simultaneously can guard, like, two guys at once almost as well as anyone else in the NBA. Uh, and his hand-eye coordination is ridiculous when digging down onto drivers and when to kind of baiting them into – making lazy passes. He's just ridiculous, I think. Something that I think a lot of us, including myself, lose sight of sometimes with Simmons, and then you get it whenever you get to see him in person, is how big he is. Like oh, enormous. He, He's he is so an big. Enor- an enormous person. He's not as thick as like, or as strong as Kawhi or LeBron or any of those players, but he's tall and he's long and when he, you know, and he moves really well. And so, all of that fits together for a really capable player when he's engaged, and he's been engaged such a large portion of his NBA career. And I think speaking of engaged, the only person we haven't talked about on John and, and, and Josh's coach poll first team is Marcus Smart. Not any sort of qualms with Marcus Smart being on the first team. And, I mean, he's just absolutely tenacious, gets in there, a, a just effective one-on-one defender who can also battle within the team concept, can help get back for rebounds and everything else. And so in some ways with Marcus Smart, the case is just so clear-cut, and there isn't another guard, depending on how we're counting Ben Simmons, who I, like does the possession-by-possession impact the way he does. It's just like, yep, first team, no questions. Yeah, no, Marcus is ridiculous uh, in terms of his switchability. He takes on very tough assignments regularly. Um, his help defense is absurd. Uh, his on-ball defense is absurd. There, there's just nothing that Marcus Smart can't do on defense. Um, would I have him in the defensive player of the year conversation? I think I would. It was interesting to me that he finished like tied for 10th and really only got two third-place votes for defensive player of the year. Uh, when guys like Patrick Beverly ended up fifth, and uh, Ben Simmons ended up higher, and Draymond Green ended up getting a second-place vote, which I that stuns me beyond belief. He was um, – I mean, Draymond Green is an immensely capable defensive player, but he was not valuable on defense this year for the Golden State Warriors because he didn't particularly care. And right. there, there wasn't – there also, like – wasn't enough for him to elevate even if he had. So I kind of I kind of get it and I mean the Warriors season went off the rails so quickly, so thoroughly. But you don't give a guy a reputation second place defensive player of the year vote when he just didn't have that. Right, I agree with you on that and that's not to say that like there isn't a case that Draymond Green isn't still the second best defensive player in the NBA. Absolutely. It's it's parallels Kawhi, except that Kawhi was way better on defense than Draymond Green this year. Right. Um, I was just, I was very, very proud of most of the coaches for not putting uh, Draymond Green uh, on their all defense team. Really only one coach. And that one coach happened to vote Draymond Green as a defensive player of the year candidate as well. Um, I, I was very, very proud of the coaches for avoiding that fallacy. Let's get into some of the young guys. I mean, there are, there are a few, I mean, obviously some of the players we've already talked about are, are young too, but probably, probably start with Bam. Bam Adebayo is fascinating to me because I worry a little bit, and you and I both love Bam, that he might be a little bit too avant-garde. That like, So what? one of the things that Bam is best at is he is actually a very versatile one-on-one defensive player. Yep. One of the most interesting games, if you want to go back and watch film in this month before games start again, watch the Heat, I believe it was a Heat, yeah, Heat Rockets game when he primarily guarded Russell Westbrook. And I think Bam did one of the best jobs defending Russell Westbrook of anybody in the league, and it wasn't the stand back and just wait for him to run at you approach, kind of like what Utah has done with Rudy Gobert moments in time. It was, no, he's just guarding Russell Westbrook. That's just what Bam Adebayo was doing. But at the same point, you know, you brought up the idea of like where the modern NBA might go. I worry a little bit, and I would need to do more digging into the stats and everything like that, but just when I watch the Heat, that I think Bam is better And this is what's so exciting in some ways. He's better at the non-traditional stuff than the traditional stuff. And Oh, I definitely agree with that. Like he's he's a slightly above average rim protector right now. He's not like a super high level rim protector. And 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 I think that sometimes as analysts, but also just because we love being on the forefront of this, like we we love the avant-garde. We love the the that but there still is the meat and potatoes and we get into like oh this guy you know maybe he can't he can't play in the conference finals or he gets all this stuff there is a lot of you know meat and potatoes regular season games where you don't have to play one of the freakiest players in the nba and 
do a great job. And it's, it's awesome to have Bam. And also you think he's so young, he can get in, if he gets stronger, can get into all these other elements. Like he, the quickness that Bam has at his size is, is jaw dropping. But, you know, making sure that your team grabs the rebound, making sure that you de- de- deter as many shots at the rim as you can, those things still matter. And right. I, I love Bam. I, I, I'm intrigued by where he, where he could go. And then there's one other part, and I don't want to go down this rabbit hole unless you want to, is I'm a little bit less certain that the NBA is going the direction of the Golden State Warriors. Well, no, not this year, obviously, but in, in past years. And needing the switchable systems, partially we have all these great centers, and partially just because the personnel that's necessary to run those systems is so hard to get. That I think, right. yeah, if you can do it, more power to you. And you can even see teams like the Rockets who can't do all of it but can do enough. I mean they have a lot of strong dudes that are shorter, like Russell Westbrook, Eric Gordon, whose absence I think was noted this year, and and very and Harden, I would say, to that extent as well. But I think that part of the beauty of professional basketball, just like at lower levels, is that it takes all kinds. And I think you might be right that in some of the like biggest moments, you're going to need those types of players. Like you want, you're going to want something versatile, want something switchy. But I think that there's still a, a big place to be had for the more traditional, the more traditional guys. Well, I, I think that that is a place I want to go because to me, where you win in playoff basketball is being multiple. It's not yes. being uh, really good at one fucking thing, right? The Clippers this year have Evita Zubac who is a very, very good rim protector. Like, I don't think he plays enough necessarily to be listed on a first or second team all-defense team. But, like, there are guys here like Stephen Adams, Andre Drummond, Jared Allen, um, Damanis Sabonis. Like, I, I think Zubak is probably better than those guys as a pure rim protector at the very least. Uh, maybe not necessarily as a uh, overall defender because he does get eaten alive in space a little bit. But as a pure rim protector in a drop coverage scheme, Zubats is very, very good. Um, but the other thing with the Clippers is they can play a small true center with Montrezl Harrell and beat you that way. They can play just super small with a guy like Marcus Morris at the front. Or Jermichael Green. If they, or, if, they, if they ever get into what I was obsessed with before they got Marcus Morris. <laughs> Right, but so Michael I think, Green I is think, a great one too. But like, and the Lakers are like this too with the way that they can switch Anthony Davis down to the five and switch everything. Well, and, and also, they have the great rim protectors in Dwight Howard and Javale McGee who can do this stuff. Just being multiple defensively, I think, is more important for a team construct than uh, you know standout singular way of playing. Well, and the single best example of that might be a team we discussed earlier, and that's the Toronto Raptors. I mean, the Raptors. They can't play multiple ways with some of their personnel, but they have good enough personnel that they can that Nick Nurse can go into different things. Like you can't play 100%. a switch system with Marcus Ole. Like it, it, I mean, it's just not the way it works. And that's not saying Marcus Ole is is bad or anything like that. He is amazing at what he does. And so it's it, you know you kind of choose your spots with that. And I think that you know it's kind of like a, a a baseball manager. No, maybe he doesn't have the most versatile bullpen arms, but knowing this guy gets out every left-handed hitter, so I'm going to put this guy in in this moment. And, I mean, Marcus Gasol ate Joel Embiid up at various moments in last year's playoffs and yep. this year. And that's incredible. That is incredible. You know, there there are a few elite centers in the league, and Marcus Gasol isn't great on all of them, but he's very good on, on most of them. And so then, okay, so you don't want to play Marcus Gasol? Great. Got Serge Ibaka, Pascal Siakam. Last year they had Kawhi and Danny Green, Fred Van Vliet. And yeah, I mean, can... like there there are wild lineups that the Raptors have put out there this year, like uh, Lowry, Powell, Ananobi, Rondé, and Pascal Siakam. Well, right? and then, yeah, exactly. And then the other team that I think is actually an arrow in your quiver, um, but I think is worth talking about a little bit, is the Boston Celtics. And some of some of the you know praise that'll go to. Brad Stevens for like, hey, we they were able to make a defense work with Daniel Tice as their as their main traditional center. Some of that is also like Daniel Tice is better than we thought he was, and he deserves no, Daniel Tice is really good. <laughs> like he deserves he deserves a lot of credit. But there is and and how Boston fares in Orlando is going to be fascinating for this concept. My general idea has been that they're a really good regular season defense that is going to have trouble against the best of the best because they also don't have, you know, like they have a lot of really good defenders, but, and as wonderful as Marcus Smart is justified first team all defense guy, 
they're the, I, I like to use the term like I've used the term before of super team vulnerable, which is like that just that a collection of talent could cause problems. But I think the Celtics defense is elite dominant player vulnerable just because they don't have that guy. I think we saw that against the Bucks last year. And there's no shame in that. I mean, there there aren't that many human beings on the planet that can capably defend Giannis. But I'm really interested in kind of how the Celtics and some of these other teams provide either kind of it can be evidence in part and contraction in part to the ideas that you and I are discussing. So I actually think Boston does have really good individual defenders, like monstrous individual defenders. I think uh, I think they do too, but in a specific concept. Right, like Marcus Smart is very clearly an awesome perimeter guard defender who can move up lineups, but his effectiveness gets taken away. Yeah, I mean, like, remember, he defended Paul Millsap well in, I want to say that was the 2018 playoffs? Might have been 17? That was incredible. Probably 17, yeah. But yeah, no, I I remember that as well. Um, Jason Tatum right now is more of an exceptional help defender than, like, a super high-level on-ball defender. Although, in their matchup with the Clippers that everyone remembers, like, he was going at it with Kawhi. which was interesting to me. Um, I think Jalen's their best uh, wing defender on ball. Uh, He's a little bit worse off the ball defensively, but I think they have enough high-level pieces to where I think that these guys are going to be very, very good, uh, or at least going to have a shot as long as Tatum's leap is real to make the finals out of the East. Um, I'm not saying they're going to. My pick is still certainly Milwaukee, but if I was looking for a – a flyer to take on a team. I think it would be actually it'd be Philadelphia. Who am I kidding? I refuse to quit you, Philadelphia, for stubbornness reasons more than actual <laughs> I get that. reasons. But yeah, like I, I think Boston actually is an interesting uh, idea just because they are so good on both offense and defense. And I, I think that this kind of leads into uh, another point I want to get into with you uh, is I don't think Jonathan Isaac got robbed. I do think Jonathan Isaac is probably already one of the seven best defenders in the NBA when he's on the court. Wholeheartedly agreed. And that is the, I would love to see the coaches be asked the question of best defenders. It'd be fun to have John, John and um, Josh go back. It's hard when the names are so similar. I can, I toss them together sometimes. See, to see, um, to see what they thought of who the actual best defenders were, not, not the of the year part of this. And I think John Isaac, has he's so fascinating for that question because he bridges the gap differently than Bam. So Bam, I think that Bam defends small guys better than John Isaac, but I really like Isaac. He kind of has some of the theory of like Kevin Durant defending James Harden, where he's just so long that he he confuses guys. But then also John Isaac, I think he has he has a lot to to provide as a help defender and theoretically as a like lead rim protector. We haven't seen him play much at the five in Orlando due to the personnel that their front offices put together. But I love John Isaac. I think that he could be a defensive player of the year in the very near term. But I also don't think that he deserved getting those kind of votes this year because he missed a bunch of the year and because Orlando didn't necessarily use him in that way. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, I, I don't think I would have voted Jonathan Isaac as a defensive player of the year candidate. I don't think I would have voted for him uh, on the all defense teams. Like here, here's something, that, here's something I want to throw at you. Total joke. If, if you imagine Jonathan Isaac in Jason Tatum's role and responsibility in Boston, I mean, oh, I just think ridiculous. he's destroying humanity. Like, and, and, yeah, and, he, that, he and Jason Tatum deserves all praise for the job he has done in the, the role that he is asked to do. And that is not anything. It's just that like... And we're not talking about Jason on offense here. We're specifically, we're talking specifically about on, defense. on defense. And Tatum did a really good job. He, he you know, he hit, he hit it out of the park for what he's asked to do. But you think about what somebody like Tatum, what, what somebody like Tatum could do in that role. And with those kind of surrounding teams, not that Orlando's defensive personnel is terrible. Like, they have some guys that I really like. But, yeah, I wanted to mention him. And then the one other guy I wanted to mention who is fascinating in this conversation, and I am not the biggest Chris Dunn believer in any stretch of the imagination. But, I, I brought up Chris Dunn with Krasinski earlier. But <laughs> the way he forces turnovers, and he can be a really tenacious on-ball defender when he's engaged, is he's just nasty. And I, I think that kind of like I think Matisse Thibel deserves deserves praise in that respect as well. Matisse is one of the most intriguing defenders in the in the entire league and I wonder where it's going to go for him, but I wanted to make sure we mentioned those two guys on this pod as well. So to me, 
I, I think Chris Dunn is like levels above Matisse right now as a defender. Um, that's not to say Matisse is a bad defender. Matisse is a very good defender, but Matisse, you can kind of beat him sometimes with over. He he gets over aggressive constantly, and if you're patient, he'll oh, he he just constantly. is over aggressive. I I, I mean yeah. it's you know it's it's kind of like he's kind of like the Russell Westbrook, but just of a specific part of defense. Like like it's not right. it's not that it's not a character flaw. It is character. Right, and like Chris Dunn, by the way, uh, had these issues early yes, in his did. career. Like he had he had very similar problems in regard to fouling and not being able to stay on the court. Um, Chris Dunn is to like there is not a case that Chris Dunn is not one of the four best defenders in uh, on the perimeter in the NBA. I don't think he's as good as Marcus Smart. I think there's a very real case. Like I don't really consider Ben Simmons a guard defender, to be honest. Uh, I, just the role that he plays is drastically different from that from like the traditional guard defender I do honestly think that Chris Dunn is probably a better defender than Patrick Beverly the problem is that Chris Dunn uh, can't play more than 20 to 25 minutes a night because his offense just isn't good enough to get him on the floor and like that's where the offensive argument comes into play Uh, you know why would you consider offense in a defensive category well Chris Dunn's offense isn't good enough to keep him on the floor enough to be the monstrous defender that he is yeah and I want to also mention a couple of other capable defenders that just didn't have the dominance this year. Again, this is getting best defender versus versus def- defensive player of the year. Paul George, I think he's taken a little bit of a step back, but he's still and, – and the offensive role is a part of this. I think he's still wonderful. Well, Josh and, Rich- and the shoulder injury as well. Yes, like exactly. It took him some time to get into, yeah. the, into the season. Josh Richardson can be nasty. I wanted I wanted to talk a little bit. OG Ananobi, I still believe is the best isolation defender in the NBA. Um, he doesn't, you know, the Toronto system is a little bit different, but I in that specific thing, if you're if you were playing a game of one on one, and for whatever reason your whole the whole thing was just who can stop any player in the NBA for the most times, I would pick OG Ananobi. I don't know if I would pick OG, but OG is a very good defender that I would anticipate within the next three or four years does make an All NBA defense team. Um, there are a couple other guys that I wanted to bring up. Uh, I do want to bring up Drew Holiday. I was surprised that Drew Holiday wasn't yes. on this list. Um, Drew is very good defensively. Drew is a monster defensively. Honestly, I understand that Eric Bledsoe was an important cog in a very successful defensive scheme. And honestly, he is an essential cog in a very uh, successful defensive scheme. I think think I would rather have Drew Holiday on defense uh, than Eric Bledsoe personally. And that's not like a slight to Eric Bledsoe who performs uh, exactly what he's asked to do and is exceptional at fighting over screens. He's probably the best in the NBA at fighting over screens, which is an incredibly important skill right now. But I do think that Drew is a much better on-ball defender while also being uh, good at getting over the top of screens and get I, not even getting over the top because that's not necessarily their scheme, but uh, you know, getting through screens. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, the center position is interesting because I, I want to close with this. Um, just in general, what your teams would look like. Uh, I think you have convinced me on. No, I don't think you have. I still think I would have Rudy Gobert first team. I do. I think he has taken a slight step back, but I still think he is the first team center. Uh, I would uh, move Anthony Davis up to first team and have it uh, Ben Simmons, Marcus Smart, Anthony Davis, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Rudy Gobert. And then the second team, I would have Patrick Beverly, Drew Holiday, uh, Kawhi Leonard. Man, the forward position gets really tough. That gets really tough. I think I might go PJ Tucker still and then I would have Brooke Lopez as my second team center yeah I would I had Lopez third on my defensive the last time I did defensive player of the year pod I and he was third number two center behind Rudy Gobert and then I actually would have AD fourth among centers I I like him what Embiid did I think that and it's hard because part they're very different in terms of their role and their capabilities um but yeah I would say Gobert one Lopez two and then if you want to argue Embiid versus Davis I think you could do that all day long and with Lopez it's again hard because he's asked to do something very specific but he excels so thoroughly at it that I give him full credit and then defensive player of the year what would your vote look like so these stats were as of the beginning of March, but when Giannis was on the floor without Brook Lopez, the Bucks still had a defensive rating under 100. They were they were 99.9, and he was I mean he's just a monster. He was key to he was key to the rim protection, key to their defensive rebounding. I think that if we're talking most outstanding defender or most valuable defender, I think it was Giannis. I think that I have been swayed on that. 
um, over the course of the last couple months really looking into it. I think I would have Giannis at number one. I think I would have Anthony Davis at number two, and I think I would have Ben Simmons at number three. Uh, I go back and forth on Ben Simmons and Marcus Smart. I'm not not 100% sure, but the, one of those two would be at number three for me. Yes, totally fair. Danny, please plug anything that you want to plug before I let you get out of here. I mean, if you want to keep listening to this beautiful voice, you can do that on Real GM Radio and Dunked On. Nate and I are currently doing about two times a week. We'll ramp up to five closer to when the season starts. Writing at The Athletic, I'm doing my solo uh, off-season previews, starting with the Delete 8, but also doing the collaborative ones with Seth Partnow, Dave Dufour, and the person whose podcast you're listening to right now. And so those are really fun. And I think of them as two sides of a similar coin, but they're very different. So I think if you subscribe to The Athletic, you should probably read both. Um, mine's yeah, more, and I mean, yeah, go ahead. Because mine's more transaction cap focused than, than, than the the collaborative ones are more about like where the team is and where they're going. And that can be coaching, that can be execution, all that's really interesting. Yeah, no, I, I think you guys, like, I, you know, you know this as well as anyone. I'm only like tangentially involved in that. Like I'm really only dry, writing like draft stuff for it. Um, but I think they've been really, really good so far. And part of the reason that I'm only tangentially involved in that is because I'm going to do something similar from a team building perspective in regard to the draft uh, for basically all of those teams uh, at some point in the off season, whenever we get closer to the draft. So uh, keep it locked at the athletic. I'm going to have a thing coming at some point this week on whether or not Gonzaga's guys uh, that are in the draft should stay or go based off of talking to the coaches that played them this season and how close they are to uh, reaching their fullest potential. I wrote something with Chris Kirshner earlier this week uh, about the Hawks and their roster building direction. And then of course, go check out the rookie scale rankings. Those are still very useful. They are the length of, uh, oh God, I don't even know. Um, but all of the stuff I published last week is literally the length of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Uh, I wrote 77,000 words that were published last week. So uh, please go listen and subscribe to that. But until next time, we will talk soon. Bye.